you're really shooting for the 100% success rate. But it's not the case. Good people will die, essentially, regardless of what you're doing. Hi, I'm Captain Adam Morton with the Canadian Army Podcast, and this episode's going to be about medics. I can't think of a support trade that's better represented in TV and the movies than medics, but it's more than just plugging bullet holes. And to unpack all this is Master Warrant Officer Jean-Sébastien Barin from the Canadian Forces Health Services Group. And we're talking about medics. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. So I think we want to set the tone for this coming out of the gate. Tell us for you a story or something that represents the ultimate medic experience from some point in your career? I think if I had to pick one, uh, for sure it took place overseas where really you live and breathe this particular experience where you're with the troops, you're attached to a company, you kind of live that almost childhood dream uh, where you see in the movie um, the medics accompanying the troops and, and they're really there to make sure everybody gets home uh, safe and sound with, well, I guess their entirety of their limbs and everything else, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, but uh, I was attached to a hotel company with a two RCR battle group and, and um, I think just walking through this open field and when our first uh, contact happened and we started placing ourselves and doing our thing and responding to the ongoing attack. And that was my first experience where just going around, making sure everyone was good was the starting point where you really felt like you're there, you're, you're the only resource. This is what you were trained for. Uh, you've put in a lot of hours through simulation, through training, uh, through different career courses, and now it's culminating to there. And it almost seems surreal because there's nothing else out there. There's no other ambulance uh, parked at the corner of the street and to, to get you out of trouble or come and get your casualties right away. So the adrenaline is going, you're trying to make sure everybody's safe and you're really focused. And it's impressive how the training and with the repetition and everything you've done and how the Army has trained you and and how have you gone through multiple scenarios trying to, to do it enough that you can't even do it wrong anymore, then you're ready to go. And then um, you're always kind of second guessing yourself. But at that point, it's where the, I guess, the, the rubber meets the road or um, the pavements. And that's where it kind of took off. Uh, it was good enough that time, at that particular time, that no one got hurt. It was just mostly uh, people falling off those walls, those small mud walls and whatnot, <laughs> yeah, right. and, and getting stuck and you hear, Doc, come here. And then, uh, and they, they just probably roll an ankle or something like that, but nothing, I guess, at that moment, people are on the adrenaline high and uh, they don't necessarily know if sometimes they're even hurt. So that's really where uh, you felt like you were doing your thing. And so there's not necessarily a far-fetched scenario that really encompassed everything, but I think that's the closest, uh, uh, that I can think of how represented us um, as medics. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting also that, you know, you're talking about that sense of until you've been there, you don't know. And then even if something serious didn't happen that particular time, you come away with a sense that you actually knew what you were doing. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and, you know, and then it feels good that you're just like, oh, yeah, we did all this stuff. And I didn't feel confused or uncertain at any point. It made sense, and now I know I'm ready. No, absolutely. So... You're coming out of recruit school, you know, it's day one, it's time to become a medic. What does that look like as a brand new soldier heading into this trade? I guess the, the existing model that's been going on for a while now 
is essentially after BMQ or a basic military qualification, uh, you get out and then you uh, head out to Borden, Ontario, where you're, I guess, welcomed by uh, the Canadian Forces Health Services Training Center. And um, at that point, you go through a... I guess, a phase that's more focused on the clinical aspect. So you start going over the different areas of clinical care where you learn how to do physical exams and uh, you go through a series of testing and um, just the basics of taking a blood pressure for the first time, examining a knee. Um, you kind of go through uh, all the different testing and, and exams you could be performing on someone and even how to question people. And, and it's not something that comes naturally to people. Uh, and so it's your first point where you start learning how to interact with patients. And that's a, a very important aspect because it'll serve you well later on in your training and in your career. Once you've done all this clinical focused uh, training, now you move on to the primary care paramedic training, which essentially you travel uh, now uh, to Moncton, uh, where there's the uh, paramedic academy, which they will train you on paramedicine. So you go through what the civilians will go through. When I did it, it was six months long. It was an accelerated program because you're there every day. You just focus on the course itself and essentially uh, you become a paramedic. And uh, that's, I guess, uh, a very appealing side of a lot of people. And for me as well, where you do a lot of medicine in a context where it's urgent, there's a lot more uh, action. Let's just say it's less deliberate or slow paced than the clinical phase. Once that's done, you pass all the exams uh, and then you're, you're officially a paramedic. And then you go back to uh, Ontario, to Borden, uh, where you conclude your training uh, with the field portion of your training of the, your RQ3. So you're there and then you do a lot of what the health services will be doing in land operations for the most part. Uh, it's impossible to cover everything. As you know, that it's a purple trade. There's no time or opportunity at that point to make you uh, a master at everything right out the gate. So the intent is really to make you a soldier where you can now apply all the skills you've acquired in the past months prior to that as a paramedic and as a, as a, a junior clinical type uh, individual, and you apply them in the field. So you go through several scenarios and then it's graduation day and uh, posting through your first unit. So uh, in a nutshell, off you go. So (laughs) we do have a large scope of practice, which encompasses those two main areas. So the the pre-hospital, which you do with your paramedicine course, and then the more clinical bedside care and nursing type skill set, which you do in in Borden. So, and then you kind of fuse all of this together and uh, you become officially a medical technician. Let's talk a little bit about the piece that comes afterwards. So we'll focus on the army aspect because that's kind of, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what we're here for. Absolutely. So you've emerged from training and you're ready to do some business. How do you get streamed in whatever direction? Because I know, for example, like in my experience with medics, sometimes they're attached either at a battalion level and then they're coming out and doing training and exercises in the field, or they wind up in a clinical setting and they kind of bounce around a little bit. How does that kind of work? So essentially, when you get to your first posting, uh, and I think sometimes it's uh, luck of the draw or faith, or there is a plan. I, I know in the career managers, uh, I guess everything in the account, but as a young private or corporal, fresh out of training, you just sent. And then for me, it was just, you're going to, to five field ambulance and okay, I just packed my bags and yeah, went there, <laughs> off you go. So 
When I landed, I guess, at Five Field Dam, right off the bat, you're kind of pushed uh, where the, the needs are. So the, the brigade and the units kind of look at where they need to distribute their people. It's almost, again, another luck of the draw where you end up uh, starting your first gig. Uh, and uh, I did, for myself, end up uh, working uh, in a UMS or a unique medical station uh, with five service battalion, which at first, uh, being a, an old gunner and knowing that things were unfolding in Afghanistan and business was going to happen and medics and troops were going to be deploying, I was really anticipating being deployed. Although I was junior, I was being told you're hey, uh, calm down, or you're still learning, and uh, what we'll see, And uh, but I would constantly ask to go. Then again, uh, to come back to where you could potentially go, uh, for me, I went to a clinic, and uh, it was just a short stint, and then after I moved to the evac platoon, where a lot of my peers ended up at the care delivery units, aka the base medical clinic, where they worked and just saw people constantly. Um, so I guess at that time, there were the UMSs, the uh, more of the base hospital type of people, and of course, more of the field type where I really wanted to go. And, and I got my chance to be, I guess, moved to the field area where we focused uh, a lot on training. And as well, we did a lot of supporting activities where we supported the base units. So in the land or army world, and in the general context, uh, this is where medics will go first where they, they can be sometimes uh, mentored or coached by more seasoned medics and then kind of developing your tradecraft from there. Yeah, and so on that subject, people generally have this mental image and you kind of describe it like, I think it's more of the private corporal level is, you know, the soldier that's like embedded with a platoon or maybe embedded with a company that's running around and like doing, you know, medical stuff on people that are injured. But that's just a very small slice of the whole medical structure that may exist even in a combat environment, like even on a deployment. So maybe describe for people who don't necessarily know, like buddy gets injured or maybe like, you know, in combat something happens and you've got your uh, tactical combat casualty care people that are embedded in the platoons working with the medics and they're doing immediate life-saving aid. Well, there's a whole other system behind that to, to get things moving. What does that look like? Initially, uh, in that context, where you're the senior medical authority on scene, so and then it's impossible to, to be tending to everyone at the same time. So a lot of rehearsing or rehearsal happens prior to that. A lot of work and, and time has gone in during training to have the members who are um, TCCC qualified to, to assist you. So depending on if there's a lot of wounded soldiers or there's just one person uh, it, the scenario will unfold kind of quite differently, but uh, what the main focus is you being, I guess, the leader where you direct people. Uh, and then, so if you're still under effective fire or under contact, of course, minimal care will be done. And the, your peers that are trained as well will know that you do the minimal things, get the people out of trouble, and uh, as well win the firefights. And then once everything's said and done, you've won that battle. Now you move on to more extensive medical work. So you prioritize everyone, or if you just have a patient, you start working and start assessing. You have help and people, of course, are covering your six and actually all around you. So they provide a security. You're there, you're applying your skill set, trying to do whatever is required to make that person live just to survive essentially the ride back home or the ride back to a more definitive care center. So at that point, 
there's a lot going in your mind. Uh, you're thinking, what's my next move? Actually, you have to be two or three steps ahead, keeping situational awareness of what's going on, looking at what the fellow soldiers are doing to, to help you as well, even if they're doing it right. And you're providing as well a lot of updates to uh, most of the time for an infantry platoon, which I have experience with, and you're sending reports up. At that point, you have to think, what's their exit plan? Because uh, you won't get the, uh, I guess, the luxury sometimes of having a helicopter just land there. And then sometimes you're going to have to haul this individual inside of a armored vehicle, or you might be able to reach out and there might be a Narber Dam. So uh, there's quite a bit of, of, of things you have to think about, and especially if you anticipate being there for a while. So getting to more cover, keeping the patient warm, because uh, people that are traumatized tend to cool off uh, quite quickly and they've lost a lot of blood. And, and that particular factor is a major contributor to people dying. So even in the middle of Afghanistan, it's 40 degrees out, but people will start being a lot colder. You have to be very creative sometimes as well. Uh, sometimes the stretcher, there's an explosion that went off. Uh, yeah. So there were stretchers were on the lav at some point. And the flash, a thermal flash, melted all the stretchers. So now, what do you do? What do you do? <laughs> yeah. I've heard of colleagues uh, using very creative ways from ripping a door off uh, a building to using a donkey to move a casualty. So at that point, you need to have a plan. And I think it's something you acquire at experience, and especially back home when you get posted to your first unit, those are things that you need to develop to always have a plan. And I would probably end on saying as well that Someone told me one day, and this will sound probably cheesy and people will remind me once they <laughs> listen to this, but yeah. uh, so, someone told me once that when you decide to become a medic, you decided to become a leader. And that's it because people will turn to you and say, what's the plan, doc? Well, like in the context of a deployment, and I think we're going to get personal here a little bit, I'll tell the story of something that happened and I think it's probably worth talking about because especially in a combat arms environment or, you know, in an operational environment, bad days happen and a bad day is a really bad day when, yeah. when something's happening. And I think a bad day for an infantry unit is a bad day, but I think it's probably even harder and I'd like to hear your comments on this is, for example, on my deployment, one of the platoons got hit and, you know, it's, some guys got killed and it was a really rough, <laughs> like, you know, it was bad. And at the end of it all, I, I remember seeing uh, the medic master corporal, he was sitting in the bunker and, you know, he, he was crying. He was really upset because we'd been training together for years and he was really close to these guys. And he felt like he let the team down because he couldn't do it all by himself. Right. And so when you're doing infantry stuff, as an example, you're running around and you're doing infantry stuff. And sometimes you don't feel the responsibility to save people's lives, but the embedded medic, it's like, everybody's looking at you. You're, you're talking about being a leader and stuff like that. How do you handle that? Like, what would you say is a way to deal with that? I think uh, there's a lot of different ways that people deal with those types of situations. And it's, I guess, uh, an impossible task to be 100% prepared. Depending on your background and how you were raised and how you were brought up or life experiences as well, it can influence that. However, there's always where you've been through some hardship and whatnot, and uh, that kind of helps as well. So there's tidbits here and there, past experiences, life experiences and work experiences where you kind of start putting this together, but nothing prepares you for, for really when things have gone wrong. And you're always kind of tearing apart every single move or every single um, 
everything you've said and done and really you're, you're reliving those moments uh, and then you're like, oh, maybe I should have done this, maybe I should have done that. And I guess our, our measure of success for medics is always the outcome of what the patient, what happens. And uh, you're really shooting for the 100%, uh, right. I guess, success rate. But it's not the case. Good people will die essentially regardless of what you're doing. And I think you have to start accepting that. And I guess with your training as well, you kind of understand the mechanics uh, behind that or where, where people uh, suffer life-threatening injuries, especially in the warfighting environments, there's people that they will not survive that uh, initial injury. And, and that's what happens. And for myself, it's always kind of reflecting. Um, you kind of go through, you, you beat yourself up. For me, talking to other people um, and kind of going over a few things uh, always help to kind of diffuse the situation because you can't let it become some kind of weight on your shoulders and, and you have to move on. And especially at the end of the day, if you've done everything in your power to make that person survive or that patient survive, you can, I guess, rest a bit better. So I guess it's a different experience for different people. Some people will take it more emotionally and we're all humans and it's not something you're, you're just processing and then delete and then you move on. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, I guess, of experience that goes into it. I guess uh, with time, you kind of build that perception where you're better at processing those events and, and then it's not less of a defeat when something goes wrong. Some people uh, won't talk about it as well. I guess there's no right or wrong answer into that. So everybody kind of processes those events uh, differently. I remember uh, one of my a tour CR uh, infantera I, I served with, and at some point he turned around during the tour and he says, hey, doc, how are you doing? You're always asking how we're doing, and I feel like we haven't been like really up to par on this. <laughs> yeah. uh, so how are you doing? And then... <laughs> And it was kind of the middle of the tour, and I was like, "Well, do I have a do you have a few hours? Because uh, <laughs> yeah. I have a few things to, to let you know to get off my chest." Yeah, and uh, yeah, I guess there's no uh, perfect answer to how to process days have gone not so well, uh, but everybody kind of like in life kind of processes things uh, differently. I like also that. Uh, you know, you said it twice already, and it makes me laugh every time. Like, I think of, you know, my time, and it's just like, <laughs> you know, doc. You call in the medics doc, and they're like, yeah, we're not doctors, we're medics. And it's like, no, no, you're doc. And everybody loves the doc. You know, that's the old joke is, uh, don't make your cooks or your medics angry. <laughs> it's like that close relationship with that as a team. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I think uh, we've been called uh, several different names through history, I guess, so. Uh, having different jobs and kind of evolving um, through the ages. But I, I think this one, Doc, always is very movie-like, but I, I guess it's something that people actually use. Um, and then I guess it's a lot easier to say than, hey, medical technician or a medic, uh, <laughs> yeah. come here. However, I did remind people as well, like, you know, I'm, I'm not a full-blown medical doctor. I don't have a doctorate in yeah. medicine. <laughs> uh, but I guess you're that maternal or paternal figure and then... Typically, it's just used in the Army environment or the field deployed areas or or when you run into some old friends as well, which you deployed with and they'll call you Doc still. Yeah. <laughs> um, or even like Doc and last name, uh, but uh, it's really an affectionate name. Yeah. Can you explain a quick difference between, like, you know, in one minute or less, the difference between med techs and medical assistants? Because I think that's important. So for med techs uh, in general are 
regular force individuals. Uh, they've gone through the, the training I've talked about before, med A's or medical assistants or primary reserve counterparts where they do have a smaller scope of practice. Given the fact that they don't go through the exact same training, they can, uh, which eventually if they do all the rec force training, they will adopt the med tech nomenclature. However, for now, I guess to make a very easy delineation is that the med A's uh, will have a, a smaller scope. They still support exercises and different um, operations. Um, so they do have um, a bit of a different skill set, uh, but still serve a very good purpose. But I think um, we want to refine that and actually maybe just kind of make it just the one skill set uh, in the future. But that's more to come on that. Uh, but the difference is where they're employed and, and how much they can do. So we talked a lot about, you know, the medics, but uh, you have a very specific role. Talk to us a little bit about your role and kind of like what the future of the medical trade holds right now. It's a big question. I know. So yeah, in the last few months, I've been added to the team that's located under the director of uh, personnel generation requirements. That particular directorate uh, looks after military employment structure. So essentially, in a nutshell, we're conducting a study and looking at how we can make uh, the med tech trade and the medical assistant trade better. We're talking full scale review and study through a, a very uh, deliberate process. We want to ensure that the medics do have all the tools, the abilities, and I guess even to kind of set that culture, uh, even the personality or kind of having really a uh, everything kind of fall into line that you get the best version of that person that day that will have to deal with a, a casualty. So you can't just um, stay idle and warfare is advancing. There's new things every day and, and never mind what COVID did to the entire world. And as well, it's no longer like symmetrical warfare. And uh, I guess this fear for me that become irrelevant. I want to keep the medics on the battlefield uh, relevant and a lot more effective. So the more effort you pour in to producing the best medic, the, the better the chances of, of success. So uh, why did you become a medic? Back in, I guess that was in 2002, I was a reserve artillery gunner. And um, I was going to school in college or CIGEP and uh, learning about politics, anthropology, and sociology, thinking I was going to change the world. And I guess it's just when you're young and then you kind of gullible or you're looking at like, I'm going to make a difference and whatnot. And uh, I guess faith or destiny uh, struck and uh, my buddy was knocking on the door and said, hey, JS, do you want to go to Bosnia? And I said, sure, let's do it. So I paused school and went to Bosnia. And that's where I guess this entire experience kind of transformed me or, and really gave me that uh, realization of I wasn't going to change the world um, anytime soon, uh, but I could definitely make a difference in someone's life uh, one person at a time. And I think looking at what the medics were doing and uh, they were with us and the the appeal of, of them always learning uh, new skill sets or just new knowledge uh, because uh, medicine is all constantly evolving and that was a very appealing to me. It wouldn't be something that you just learn and then it just stays like that way. That kind of culminated into me putting my paperwork for uh, occupational transfer to medic while I was still serving in Bosnia. And really, uh, I think it, it started from there. I would say that 
as being a gunner and uh, you're like, oh, none of the, I don't want to do uh, the too much of this field or <laughs> living in trenches or whatever, <laughs> but yeah. like the the hardship or some kind of silly silly thought like that. And you're like, the medics have it good. Look at them. They they have chairs. They have an ambulance. <laughs> and uh, a little that I knew was actually I think I've done more army centric and and <laughs> gone through a lot more hardship being as a medic. But at the time, I was like, you know what? Seems like a pretty good deal. And uh, from there, I knew this was the gig I'd be doing probably for the rest of my life. And and then you did. <laughs> yeah. No. I, and then here I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, hey, thanks so much for taking the time to, you know, unpack all of this for us and explain what it all looks like. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, you're welcome. That was Master Warrant Officer Jean-Sebastien Marin from Canadian Forces Health Services Group. If you want to talk about something or have an idea for a show, shoot us an email. The email's in the show notes. As usual, I'm Captain Adam Morton. Morton out. Morton out.